Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. While I realize I'm not my own guest today, I must make the beginning of this introduction all about me. I simply love going to museums. Pandemic notwithstanding, this past year, I've spent time with Alice Neal, Jasper Johns, Dawood Bay, David Hockney, Paul Cezanne, RGB, Cherry Grove Vacationers, and on and on. One of the big on and ons is the powerful exhibit at New York City's Jewish Museum, Afterlives, Recovering the Lost Stories of Looted Art. What I thought I knew about the Nazis paled in comparison to the information presented and chronicled in this extensive, powerful display. It includes paintings, drawings, and Judaica that survived this hideous time in our history, despite overwhelming odds. And to that end, I knew I had to extend an invitation to Darcy Alexander, the Susan and Elihu Rose Chief Curator at the Jewish Museum, and she accepted. Before joining the Jewish Museum in 2018, Darcy was Executive Director of the Katona Art Museum in New York's Westchester County, Chief Curator at the Walker Art Center in Minneapolis, Senior Curator at the Baltimore Museum of Art, and Photography Curator at Manhattan's Museum of Modern Art. She has also served on numerous boards and foundation panels. Lots to talk about. So let's meet and get to know Darcy Alexander. Welcome and thanks so much for joining me remotely today. It's great to be here. Thanks so much. I have to go back. What's the relationship between Darcy Alexander and art? And how far back does it go? Oh, uh, well, I think for a lot of people that are in the art world, whether or not they're artists or they're actually in the world of performance or theater, a lot of those experiences from childhood I think really set us up for what happens later. And that was certainly my case. I came from an artistic family and uh, really enjoyed art from an early chapter in my my career. I thought I wanted to be an actress. And so I did a lot of theater in high school, which has actually been very, come in very handy over the years because I am not intimidated about standing up in front of people. And I hearken back to my days on the stage when I, when I was sort of trained how to, how to speak and to present myself. Um, but I think that one of the most transformative experiences happened to me in high school, actually. And I think about this moment a lot. Uh, it was actually in our theater. Um, but it wasn't about theater, about images. And there used to be this woman, I'm sure she's she's still doing this. I hope she's still doing this, named um, Jean Kilborn. And she had a kind of traveling slideshow that she would take around called Killing Us Softly. And what she did in that incredibly powerful slideshow is she put images up on the screen um, images drawn out of the media, out of magazines that depicted women and depicted, you know, uh, advertising and fashion and and uh, domestic kind of um, settings. And she decoded, she deconstructed these images so that after you left the auditorium, you were thinking about pictures, especially pictures circulating in the mass media in a completely different way. And she was very focused on the subliminal messages, the messages that are, you know, just below the surface of that beautiful body or that beautiful setting. And that really stuck with me because much of what being curious about is balancing the information that you get on the surface of things 
and really delving more deeply into understanding sort of from a critical perspective, how those image operate within a larger set of issues and circumstances. So I would say that one lecture that 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 woman gave back in the 80s uh, had a had a huge impact on me and my understanding of representation, my fascination with pictures. And also I was a sort of um, uh, nascent feminist. Um, so how women in particular were represented in the media was also of great interest. So where'd you grow uh, up? Uh, outside of Boston. Mm-hmm. So you had a lot of art surrounding you. Yeah, absolutely. In the city. Mm-hmm. Well, I was a rural kid too. So, okay. so I got a lot of information from, from books and like reproductions hanging in, you know, in the kitchen, you know, just this sort of, this sort of daily stuff that, that surrounds us. And I think, again, this, you know, when you're, when you, be, well, when I became a curator, it was also about, you know, objects carry a lot of meaning and significance. Um, they do in our personal lives. And they do in our cultural lives. You know, it's it's like making things and preserving things and caring for things is very much a it's a very human, it's like one of the fundamentals of being of being a human being is is what you create. So so curate, so I suppose like my my draw to that was also like this instinct of like, how do we care? How do we care for objects and things that people leave behind? when they're no longer present. Right. Um, and it's a big responsibility, but it's also so interesting and fun because you get to work with artists. <laughs> Did you back in the day think that that was a path that you would pursue, that you would be the artist? No, I, I never, I was a terrible artist. Well, that's what you and I never, had ever had. <laughs> Our class was nothing but sheer torture for me. Oh my God. I love to, I love to make, you know, I was always in the ceramic studio and stuff, but I was a terrible artist. But fortunately, I was savvy enough with my own skills and limitations to know, okay, I love being around artists and I love looking at stuff, but actually don't ask me to make it because it's going to be really a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you. So art spoke to you in a way that really, really resonated with you from a young age. Absolutely. Yeah. So then that would makes sense for me to say that that's the trajectory your path took as you got older, as in going to college. Yeah. I mean, you know, these, these, these progressions are iterative. Like you, you have a couple great teachers. I had some amazing, amazing teachers again in high school. Interestingly, I had great faculty in college too, but for some reason, high school sort of stuck, stuck with me more and had some amazing mentors. You know, once I actually got into the, the fields um, and had gone to graduate school and slogged through that. I loved it, but it, it is, you know, grad school is under the best of circumstances, a lot of, a lot of work. And you also can be, you know, it can be quite isolating. So when I, when I first got out into the world, um, I just had some amazing people that I learned from and I just listened a lot. I've eavesdropped a lot on conversations happening between curators I looked at, at art all the time. Um, you know, I remember an early early chapter of my uh, career when I was just starting off at a museum, and um, my boss asked me what I had seen. You know, what what was out? I was a you know in my in my twenties, and I was asked what, what what's out there? What, what's happening in Ch- not Chelsea back then? It was really Soho, 
And, uh, and I, I, couldn't, mm-hmm. I couldn't say immediately. And he's like, you've got to get out there. You've got to be looking at stuff. You've got to be talking to people. You can't just, this is not graduate school anymore. It was those kinds of moments of getting really excellent advice, sometimes harshly worded, sometimes graciously said, uh, were, were really instructive. But it was a no-brainer that you were coming to New York. Yes, I, I guess <laughs> forgive, the, for, forgive the chauvinism because <laughs> I grew up around here. But it, it, I mean, that was the assumption, right? I, I was thrilled to come. Yeah, and I had both my parents were from New Jersey, and my grandparents lived in New York, so it wasn't it wasn't so such a stretch for me for me to be here. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was very exciting to get that first job and to pack up my U-Haul my with my boyfriend <laughs> and drive down 95. <laughs> third floor walk up in Brooklyn. But you didn't stay in the beginning, right? Because I mentioned in the introduction, I mean, you've worked in other parts of the country, but your first job post-graduate school was doing what in New York City? I started as a curatorial assistant, mostly doing Xeroxing at MoMA. Mm-hmm. I worked my way up over maybe five years at MoMA and um, went down to Baltimore at the Baltimore Museum, which is a wonderful encyclopedic museum in that great city, and had my two kids down there and stayed for eight or nine years. Then I went out to Minneapolis. Yeah, I've been I've been in a lot of different places, and I think it's so important to do that, you know, to kind of get out of your comfort zone and and move to see the many different parts of America and, and what art means to those communities. I think in Baltimore in particular, you know, when you're at a place like the Museum of Modern Art, you can talk to people. The audiences are very diverse. They're also very sophisticated. And when I went to Baltimore, I really learned how to just speak more clearly and to reach people on a more human level when I was talking about art. So that was a, it was a great learning experience. And Baltimore, of course, is a much, much more diverse uh, city than any of the other. It was, it was just a learning experience and, and a fascinating one. And now that we're in a moment, too, with um, this real understanding that institutions and artistic programs need to be much, much more diverse. You know, the history of art has been written principally by white men and uh, and women but um that it's been very exclusionary and um you know many of us are are thinking about that as we're looking forward to the next chapter of our exhibition programs and our engagement with artists so from those early days at MoMA to now there've just been huge changes and strides um that that I think have been really instrumental I've been very fortunate uh, during the course of this podcast to meet both Artists like Joyce Scott, for example, that struck me when you said Baltimore flipped out over her and um, the glass artist, oh, and glass artist Beth Flipman, and then interviewing the woman from the National Museum of Women in the Arts in Washington, D.C., who threw some very disturbing statistics my way about how the percentage and the number of women artists represented in this day and age. You just want to rip your hair out and just and start screaming. Did you find that to be an issue for you, your gender in any way, or, or that was just superfluous? Um, I, I, I would have to say that I had the benefit of have, of working for some incredible women right from the very, very beginning of my career. And they did absolutely everything that they could 
to ensure my success. And as, as someone who now is in a position where I can do that for other women, I really try to go out of my way to, um, to make sure that people are able to achieve an appropriate work-life balance. I always felt as a, a, a woman professional that I've had to work extra, extra, extra hard, double the labor, double the time. Um, and I don't think that's fair. And I don't think that the next generation um, expects that that is that they're that they're going to be held up to that standard. Equality is is something that you know that that is assumed now in the in the workplace. I think from I think my generation was a somewhat of a transitional generation where we were really were the expected to do it all. Yeah, and mm-hmm. um, so so yes, there were certainly some challenges, mostly just balancing my workload um, and having having a family. Uh, that, mm. that was. Um, mm-hmm. But I had some great women. I was hired at Baltimore um, by Doreen Bulger, and I walked into her office nine months pregnant. She didn't bat her eye. Mm-hmm. When can you start? Um, and and Susan Dackerman at the Baltimore Museum as well. So you know that was that was a great foundation and one that I've I've been very keen to pass along to the next generation of women and professionals moving up in the workforce. Has your personal trajectory made sense to you as you have traveled one from one museum to another? How much of that was your doing? Um, I don't know. I don't know. I think a lot of it is is luck and timing and flexibility and opportunity all coming together. Um, I, I never expected to move out to Minneapolis. It's not something I ever... Well, with all due respect to Minnesota, who would have thought that... <laughs> Oh, hey, don't knock Minnesota. It's a oh, wonderful, okay. wonderful place. Okay, I sorry. Have to make sure. My <laughs> apologies. And, and to despite Minnesota. the woes in Minneapolis uh, um, related to George Floyd and that, and that right, horrible, right. It, it, it's just something that we're still grappling with. But it it was a wonderful time in my life. And, and um, so I think it's a combination. You know, we plan for things, you know, in life. We try to, we try to reach our goals, but things happen along the way, um, both hurdles that we hadn't anticipated as well as opportunities that can appear quite suddenly. Um, mm-hmm. And you seize on them and you go where that takes you. And it's the openness and, and the excitement about the possibility there that I think has, has allowed me to to move around and and have some pretty interesting jobs over the years. So picking up on going where that takes you, tell us about going to the Jewish Museum in New York City. The Jewish Museum in New York City is just this wonderful institution right here on Museum Mile, as as I'm sure you know, at 92nd Street. And um, I would have to say of of all the museums where I've I've worked, the, the Jewish Museum's mission is so powerful. It's so strongly anchored in this um, identity around Jewish experience and, 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 and creative expression. It's an art museum. So some people think, oh, you're at the Jewish Museum. Is that a, is it a Holocaust museum? Is right, it right. a Jewish history museum? Uh, no, not exactly. Um, although sometimes our projects kind of intersect with those subject matter. Um, it's really an art museum, so you're looking at Jewish culture and Jewish cultural life through the lens of art. And often you're just, you know, it's it, it is, um, you know, some of the greatest artists of the 20th century. If you're looking back on abstract expressionism and other, we're, we're Jewish. So you know, the mission is so clear. 
it has made the task of you know developing ideas and thinking about what to write about and what to put on our walls it's it's it all gets back to that mission and the other thing that's so interesting about the Jewish Museum is that um, we were really during the 1960s in particular at the forefront of the avant-garde with our um, our director Alan Solomon who was a great champion of artists and supported Johns and you mentioned uh, Rauschenberg and, and Jasper Johns at the beginning. He he had their first shows here, museum shows here at the Jewish Museum. So in addition to having this really strong identity about Jewish people, Jewish culture and, and art, we also have always really respected the creative voices of artists. Right. Um, and so that, you know, that being able to work with artists and bring fresh energy and perspective onto those themes is also a fantastic and exciting part of, of what we do. So give us the genesis of this particular exhibit, which, as I said in the introduction, is incredibly powerful. And I didn't mean to come across as a big know-it-all. Wait a minute, I got to go back and read that again. And I, you know, I was the museum in France, Jeux de Pomme, which I have been to, which yeah. was basically a warehouse that the Nazi storage depot yeah, yeah. dumped all the art in. It's like, yeah. are you kidding me? Whatever exhibit I'm at, when it's a visceral experience, there's mm-hmm. nothing better than that. It encompasses the head all the way down to the heart. So what's the genesis of this? Whose idea was this? And how long was it in the making? Well, before I answer that, I want to linger on your what you said about okay. the Shikam. Because when you go into the show and you, you, you go into the left gallery, there's this huge photo blow up, which I ordinarily really loathe putting big photo blow ups, partially because an early chapter of my career was as a photography curator. So I have this reverence for photographic images. But anyway, I, I, I put that aside because there's this incredible photo image of this room that is just stacked to the ceiling. with hundreds and hundreds of artworks. And there are, you know, floor to ceiling, there's Paul Cezanne and Leger and Picasso and Matisse and Chagall and and like all of these incredible artists. And they're just crammed into the small space. And you're right. That was the, um, the Jude Palm gallery. So the Nazis would, you know, they plundered some 600,000 objects during the war. That's about 20% of all the work, all the art that, you know, was in Europe at that time. And the plunder in in France was particularly damaging, thorough, vicious, relentless. And the reason that so much of that work was saved was because of this one woman, Rose Valland, who was a registrar who'd been working for the Louvre um, prior to the war, very, you know, quiet and unassuming figure. And um, the Nazis just kept her on as kind of a cataloger and, you know, to keep track of things, not knowing that she spoke German, not knowing that she was sneaking in at night and taking photographic images of their records. She was talking to truck drivers. She was understanding the train routes. So she knew where stuff was coming from and where it was headed. She was communicating with the French resistance at the time. So her incredible courage in um, keeping track of these of these objects during this parallel time. Wow, wow. Yeah, so it was really, so, so part of the story that we try to bring, bring forward is like, how is it that, so, that these objects were say, like saved? Because so much was destroyed. So what are the circumstances by which certain things are, are endure, certain things get preserved, and other things get lost? 
And so with every label, we try to explain what the circumstances were for that particular object being able to kind of travel through chronology to the present day. But sometimes it boils down to like one person or a few people. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that, that's, that's really powerful to be able to bring out those stories as well. And women also were very behind the scenes. People think of the monuments, men. Yeah, um, you're right. But, but women were very much behind the scenes too, keeping, keeping records and acting in the background on behalf of, uh, of people that were really trying to save the art and get it out of Europe. Certain things that stuck with me reading at one part that some of the artists who were in concentration camps were doing their art mm. and then hiding it in the walls behind the bricks. And it was, oh my God, really? And then I just throw in another fact that I didn't know as I'm walking through and there was a, a concentration camp in Tunisia. Are you kidding me? I didn't know that. How to mount this thing because it's massive. And we did it during the pandemic. So we actually uh, had to more or less double the number of loan requests that we were sending out because, first of all, all the national archives that houses, you know, the, all the records of the ERR, which is the Nazi era looting task force, um, everybody was closed. The national Gallery was closed, the Smithsonian was closed. So um, a lot of our reserve, all of our, you know, a lot of our resources were just not, you know, not available. So we had to really be aggressive in our pursuit of, of objects because, you know, usually, you, you know, you do a show and you can assume like maybe every third or fourth work would be denied because, you know, there's another show happening or whatever, but we were just having loan requests come back and say like we're closed <laughs> yeah yeah right, we, would, right. we would consider your loan but we're but sorry yeah <laughs> so, so um so we had the challenge of like trying to put the show together during the pandemic and fortunately because um we have some objects many objects actually you know in the jewish museums I just gonna say that are in your archives yeah yeah and it's a really important reason of why we did the show is that um the jewish museum was part of um, an organization or partnered with an organization called the Jewish Cultural Reconstruction. And the JCR operated roughly between 1949 and 1952. And the Jewish Museum was a depot for ceremonial objects and decorative art objects, many of them silver Torah pointers and Hanukkah lamps that were considered airless, which is such a terrifying word because it suggests that the communities, the people from whence these objects came no longer existed or were no longer reachable. Right. So these airless objects came to the Jewish Museum for, for safekeeping through the JC through the auspices of the JCR. And some of those objects became the foundation for the collection. So, you know, that that provided a rationale for why you would do the show. I mean, it's a show that would be appropriate to do under any circumstance, but because the Jewish Museum actually had a role in the recovery effort, it just made it all the more appropriate and fitting that we would be able to show objects from our own collection that were part of the story. So, and yeah, the 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 artist um, Dorgaz is the one you're referring to. He made a piece about in the show at the very end um, about his family of um, Tunisian Jews who came to Israel. A lot of people don't know that 
you know, the Nazis occupied Tunisia. It's like this totally other, you know, latent, you know, yeah. chapter that hasn't gotten much attention. So he really made his whole work about the objects from that side of his family. Um, mm. And they're often very humble objects that, 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 and that is, you know, getting back to like this, this thing that the question that you posed at the beginning, which is about, you know, why does one get attracted to art and why do curators venture into a field where they're caring for other people's stuff, basically? It's because objects, even the most humble things, you know, an old photograph, a, something that you inherited from a, you know, from a relative, um, they carry such significance. So the fact that Dor Gez in this last installation, this artist who was making a work about his uh, family of um, Tunisian relatives, you know, he has like buttons and writings, just humble, humble things that he's put in these beautiful vitrines as if to say, hey, like we're in an art museum, but these humble things are just as important to telling the story as the great masterpieces. Dorsey, explain to me the giving birth to something like this. How does this happen? Is it a collective group of individuals who are saying that this is what we're going to focus on this year or the next year? Teach that to me. And don't worry, your job won't be threatened by my mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it is It is often, um, you know, it can work from a variety of different directions. Like I can look at an ex- the exhibition schedule going out into 24, 25, and 26 and sit down with a few people like our director, our head of marketing and others and say, you know, we really need a, this type of show in this slot. Or like, it would really be great if we could do something around this issue that may tie into something that's happening, like some anniversary or something like. We, we do look at big picture, you know, structural things when we're, we're planning exhibitions. But oftentimes it's an individual curator who um, has come up with an idea, the, the idea gets bounced around, you know, both internally and, and maybe that curator is part of a network of other intellectuals and other artists that for whom that conversation is, is fleshed out. And then that idea gets carried forward into a wider forum at the museum. And then, you know, we go back and forth. Okay, so we're thinking about doing these types of shows going out, you know, X numbers of years, how does this idea kind of, does it, you know, does it maybe fill, check one of those boxes if you, or is it something totally original that is equally worthy that we never would have anticipated, but we've got to do? That's not typical for your museum necessarily. Well, 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 actually one of the things that's wonderful about the Jewish museum is that we often do what's not typical. (laughs) So, so we, we often look at artists who some of the shows that we've, we've done recently, like, you know, we have an exhibition coming up about the filmmaker, the Lithuanian filmmaker, Jonas Mikas, who was an experimental filmmaker and he was the Jewish Museum's first film curator, but he was also like this incredibly creative genius. So, you know, we do sometimes tap back into our own archive for ideas. Uh, but, you know, it's really, where does an idea come from? It comes from reading the newspaper. It comes from watching TV. It comes from a really, you know, incredible conversation or making 
you know, an observation, a fleeting observation that you've just been mulling over for years. And then suddenly the time is right to, to, to dig deeper. And so it's a creative process for sure. And it so feeds the soul. As you were talking, it just dawned on me that one of the exhibits at your museum, I'm here talking about Jewish meaning, deifying you, was the exhibit on Leonard Cohen. I was just so primed and prepped for that, (laughs) that I just kept going back. I had done a lot of reading about him. I was so intrigued about him. And he's an artist of a different ilk. And it was just... Man, you know, you, you go into one of those rooms and people aren't breathing. It's true. It's true. People would come in to that exhibition and they would just sit and not leave. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you had to start was, charging them rent. You know, you poke your head in and, and then go <laughs> grab some lunch and come back, however, you know, half an hour, 40 minutes later and poke your head back in and you've got that same couple sitting on that beanbag chair. Right. Right. <laughs> you know? I mean, right. it's, that's what it's like being around amazing artistic brilliance. You know, when he was a poet, he had an incredible voice. He was a, a visionary. And so, uh, but also his charisma. Like, I think there's, how do you even define what that is? But when you see it on film, you know it. And it was, it, the pull of that show was incredible. And I, and I think one of the other things that was so compelling was the influence that he had on other artists you know, that, that a lot of the show was, you know, worked by other artists that were kind of riffing on him or making a tribute to him. And, and that was really powerful too. It's like, man, he, you know, it's impact. It's just this incredible impact that he's, that he's had both on artists, but on the audiences that, that walked through the door to, to, to see and hear about his, his path as a And creator. he wasn't a perfect man, to say the least. No. no. And that was the greatest part about it was, forgive it, it's not very sexy to say it this way, but it was warts and all, you know, that mm-hmm. exhibit, which was mm-hmm. really important. So mm. do you feel like you've died and gone to heaven in terms of your career? Um, there's still so much to do. You know, we all, we all are like, we finish a project and, and we put it out into the world and we hope that it's received well. We mostly hope that audiences connect, you know, I mean, it, for me walking into the galleries and seeing an older couple, you know, sitting on a bench watching the Nuremberg trials and one the woman puts her, you know, puts her hand on the shoulder of her husband and they're watching together. And those moments where you're seeing people connect emotionally um, is as important as the greatest review or the, you know, the accolades or whatever critical reception. It's just, that's why we do what we do. We want to reach people. And again, that goes back to, you know, being at the Jewish Museum. And people feel they're they're so our, many of our visitors are so connected to that identity and to that history that it's it is very personal, and you really hope that you can reach people at that level. So no, I don't think I don't think much about you know oh this is it this is the penultimate <laughs> um, you know I'm thinking okay now what you know what's next you know what needs to be done, and the other you know the other thing I would say is like you know it, it takes years to gestate something. I think that we live in such a like sped up world, um, you know, where, you know, we're instantaneously communicating with each other. We're sharing images. We're on email all the time. Everything is, 
expected to happen now at such a pace. Right. And I think one of the things you were saying at the beginning, how much you love museums. Well, you know, museums, they do often require us to just slow, slow way down. down. Oh man, that's so true. And that, and it's so important to do that and, and to appreciate that, you know, it may take, you know, your favorite artist three years to actually kind of come up with, with their next, their next best thing. And so having patience and being flexible and, and building trust, you know, both with the, with the collaborators on your, on your exhibition or your project, but also with your audiences so that they come back because they love what, what you, you've done as an institution. So those are some of the bigger reasons why we keep at it. What's it like to work with an artist? How much do they impact what you do? How much are they included in that? What's that like? Oh, it's, it's, it's like uh, you're engaging in this like deeply personal relationship. Yeah, often. hello. Uh-huh. You know, you have this huge responsibility because you're you're number one telling someone else's story, and and that's just true across the board. Um, in terms of what curators do at museums or or at any museum, like whether or not it's an archaeological museum, natural history museum, music museum, right. art museum, like you have this responsibility that you you're carrying and interpreting someone else's life and someone else's stuff, oftentimes. Uh, but when you're dealing with a, you know, working with an artist, it can often be a very one-on-one relationship where you, over many sessions and many conversations, like you're building up a foundation of, like them really getting to know and trust you and to to be willing to share things about their life and their artistic practice that will make that will inform you as the curator with the information that you need to build out a really robust story around this person and their work and their ideas. But again, that often takes a lot of time and it has to be done in person. It's not, um, it's not something, yes, of course, Zoom has helped a lot. You know, we can, we can reach each other more readily, but, but yeah, it's a, it's an extended process. It's one of trust the artist is involved absolutely every single step of the way. And if I have, if I'm working with an artist and they say, I really, really, really do not want you doing or saying that, then I know I have to pause and have a conversation that can go one of two ways. One way is I actually really, really think this is an important part of your history and practice that will help people understand the nuance of what you do much better. Mm -hmm. Or I get it. And I understand that this is something that you're not ready to put out there right now. Mm-hmm. So when I say it gets personal, it's like can get on that level. Yeah, I get it. I get it. So, so you are really close to that individual, and and hopefully for your life, like the artists that I worked with very early in my career are still the ones that I go back to as friends and as colleagues. That you still have relationships with. Oh yeah. Oh, that's terrific. What's yeah, that um, like to be the chief curator? It's just like it would be, you know, in any other sector where I have a department of other curators, um, a wonderful group of curators, people at very different stages of their career, different areas of expertise and interest. And they report to me and I work with them on their, on their ideas. We meet regularly and talk about things, whether or not it's like something that we may want to buy for the collection, or if it's, again, someone who has had that brilliant idea, that nascent idea, and they just want to test it. 
so it's it there's nothing you know nothing particularly magical about it um you know it's just I spend, it's a business it, it's a business but it's also like it's a business where the the output is creative and intellectual which again you, you know it's that how do you cultivate that and support that process right. in other people you know that's how i see my job i have to really help people find a path with with their work and that's that's really fun I, it's one of the favorite parts of the jobs is bringing on that next generation of brilliant uh, brilliant curators to come up in the ranks i think the marriage of going to museum because paul Cezanne is one of your favorite artists and you see his work versus somebody like for me Alice Neal, I didn't know who she was. You know, I wasn't sure how much I was going to scream that out because the, the Met was overrun by people who wanted to see this exhibit. And so the contrast about going to a museum is so wonderful of being exposed to somebody brand new. I did not know the photographer, Daywood Bay, but I certainly was familiar with Hockney's drawings. To see something in my face that was just so famous and to be surrounded by it. There's no experience like that ever. Yeah. Yeah. You really hit on something too, because when you look at a work of art, um, you're really face to face with a work of art. One of the things that, you know, art demands of us is to like put ourselves in other people's shoes. It's a gross oversimplification, but, you know, you know, to, Really get what artists are trying to do. You often have to like shut down all the noise and the expectations that you have in your head about what you think that person is, you know, they're famous or whatever. Everybody's talking about this, but you have to shut down all that noise and look at this thing or experience this, this object and think, okay, how did the artist make this? How, what, what are they trying to say here? And the, the interesting part about doing that, of turning outwards and trying to put yourself in the position of the maker and the creator is that in doing that you learn what your own thoughts are do you know what i mean like mm-hmm, you're, mm-hmm. you're you're trying to understand someone else right you're trying to understand where someone else is coming from creatively but to do that you have to be aware of what you know and what you don't know and your worldview so there's always this process like you just said I didn't know, like you had some phrase in your last, the last kind of lead in here. You're like, I didn't know Alice Neal. I didn't know. You're aware when you go to, when you go to museums and you're presented with these um, extraordinary things, it's okay to not know. Right. It's totally okay. Like you don't have to be like a PhD in art history to be able to go in and have an incredible experience of something just because it's unbelievably beautiful and you've never seen anything like it and you have no idea how it was made. Right. And like, that's what you, that's what you can appreciate. Like I, I just saw the Ruth Asawa show at, at David's Werner and uh, curated by Helen Mosworth. And it was just, it's like, how did she make these things? They're mm-hmm. so incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess this is just a, a way of, of um, circling back to a point that you made, which is like, there's such a mystery there and you know that that it you know the great the great encounters and the great experiences are often when you are taken into a completely unfamiliar terrain and you learn something totally new both about history and the artist but also about yourself and that's right, you know and right. that's what we try to aim for you know is that balance 
And but at the same time, also saying, I don't care for his work or I'm exactly she didn't you know she didn't speak to me. You you've got that freedom. But the fact that it's a transcendent experience is just so important and was so important during the time of the pandemic, even though museums were shut down at the at the outset, letting people come in, not in droves, which is also a great thing because it's one of those, I can't, can't you see, please move over to the right. I can't see, you know, that kind of thing or pushing somebody, but just to transcend and to be absorbed is an experience that can't it be is. duplicated. That just it, can't be duplicated. It can't, it can't. And I have to admit that I haven't minded the the smaller crowds at museums, you know, because of just exactly what you're saying, just allowing time to, you know, move through space and, and um, not be, not be crowded in by a queue behind you waiting to get to that next grade, that next right. grade. Right. Um, and in your exhibit, just sort of saying, I didn't know this. Are you kidding me? I didn't know that. You know, yeah. I found myself like some kind of a homeless person going through the exhibit, yeah. mumbling to myself. I'm really grateful that nobody came and asked me to leave. We've, had some, <laughs> we've had some mumblers, but the thing that thing, I was going to say, we, we, I, I go in sometimes hear people talking to themselves. It's really, no, seriously. I mean, people have a lot of, you know, or they'll shake their head, you know, I mean, people just, you know, art, those experiences, often often produce those strong uh, impulses and reactions but you know getting back to this not knowing and knowing and you know part of what curators really do is they provide context it's like this mm-hmm. this this thing this chapter of history this set of objects they don't exist in isolation they exist within this much bigger space so part of what we try to do is like forgive the um, forgive the cheesy uh, metaphor. We're trying to paint a picture that is a full as full a picture as we can create, so that even when you have those visceral reactions, like "Wow, I really don't like this," or "This is amazing," or "How did he make that?" or "She make that?" We try to answer some of those questions in a completely neutral way, or as neutral as it can be, so that you can, as a visitor, have a, a as informed an experience as you can, and hopefully one that that in some small way is transformative for you as well. And also, and I just thought of this before, because I was at the New Britain Museum and they had an exhibit on Helen Frankenthaler. Mm-hmm. There's background information, whatever. And then at some point, you know, I'm reading about that. And then it was, I don't give a shit. I'm standing in front of your painting and I can't move. I'm absorbing this and forgive the melodrama, but it maybe I was just prepped and primed. Somebody else might not feel that way. And I'm not apologizing for it or bragging about it, but going to a museum is a very overt action. It is. Darcy Alexander, I can't thank you enough to share your past, your present, your future with us. This was just so interesting. And I knew after I got out of that exhibit, I'm going to track her down. Oh, <laughs> thank that. you. It was it was very exciting and interesting and fun to, to talk to you as well. And um, any moment I have to, to get up and say, you know, this is a show you know, people should see, I, I, I will do so again. So thank you for, for saying that. And it's been great to talk to you please feel free to come back into my museum. (laughs) It was really wonderful to meet you and thank you for the work that you do. Oh, thank you very much. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.